0: Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grit, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I'm joined by Alex Ferrari. You know him from Indie Film Hustle and the Bulletproof Screenplay podcast. Today we talk about his new book, Rise of the Film Entrepreneur and his companion podcast, The Film Entrepreneur Podcast. We also talk about AFM, film distribution, and how indie filmmakers need to be business-minded if they're going to thrive as professional filmmakers. Let's get into it. And here we are with Alex Ferrari. Alex, thanks for being on the podcast again, man. How are you?
1: I'm good, brother. Thanks for having me back, man. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun uh, talking with you always. Um, I think the last time you were on, you had a new book and a new podcast. Uh, Shooting for the Mob was the book, and the podcast was Bulletproof Screenwriting. And now you're back to talk about yet another new book and another new podcast.
1: A new podcast, new website, new everything. <laughs>
0: Whole new thing. And it's all about the film entrepreneur. And yes. uh, I I hope we can focus on that most of the time today, but before we get into that, I, I was lucky enough to see you at a panel at the American Film Market, um, mm-hmm. and then I, I got to shake your hand afterwards, talk to you a little bit. Um, I had a lot of fun. Uh, I was just curious, uh, you, you've, you've been there a few times. Could you tell us um, a little bit about your experience at AFM?
1: Yeah, um, AFM, it was a very interesting experience uh, this year because uh, there was a a noticeable drop in attendance in regards to distributors. Last year, there was about 800. This year, there was about 360 or so, and uh, it was a very interesting time. The the one thing I always find fascinating about AFM is that every year, there is a new you know catchphrase or a new word a new thing that everybody wants. Last year was OTT. Everybody was talking about, you know, starting their own over the top or their own streaming services and things like that. This year was all about AVOD. AVOD, advertising video on demand. And and it's it's fascinating because I was able to meet with a lot of distributors uh, because of the whole distributor thing and I was I was brought in to talk to a bunch of them. And I kind of just realized that a lot of these distributors have no idea how to generate money in this this new film economy. The it, the old way of doing things is so it's crumbling if not crumbled. Hmm. And and they're starting to try they're trying to figure out whatever they can and uh, I did a podcast on 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 this specifically where I said that de- it was the death of traditional film distribution because in many ways Distributors are just – they're just trying to figure it out like the rest of us. They have no magic ball. I, I know of one distributor who is a fairly large, well-known distributor that will put out 40, 45 movies in a month. Wow. So, And there's not a lot of care that you can give 45 movies in a month. Right. And what they're doing is basically acquiring as many films as they can so they can build up their library – And then they'll spit those movies out onto all the platforms and throw everything out there to see what sticks. Hmm. That's basically their business model at this point is to acquire, 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 acquire. Uh, By the way, when I say acquire, that means they're not going to pay you anything. So uh, they're just basically going to take your movie without any money up front and uh, and then just build up their library so then they can – Maybe sell an entire library off to a new streaming service that comes off or license, excuse me, not sell off, but license it. Uh, The only power that a distributor has is is their library. So the bigger the library, uh, the better chances they they can monetize something, make some sort of money Mm -hmm. because the revenue streams that they're used to have all dried up because the entire business has changed so radically Mm -hmm. in the last five years that every year there's something new. Every year something shifts. And that's one thing I really took away from AFM this year is that nobody knows anything like, um, William Goldman says, uh, nobody knows anything. And a lot of these distributors, especially the lower end distributors are becoming more and more predatory. I heard some, some deals. I I couldn't believe it. I I, It was shocking, Hmm. you know, Like the one, the one, of the worst ones I heard was no money up front and it was for a 20 year deal, 20 year deal. He was trying to get this money for 20 year deal for, and in that 20 years, it was only $50,000, uh, marketing cap. But the, the kicker was it was for every year. Hmm. So that would have been a million dollars in marketing. That, that film, you basically would have just, the film was being donated to that distributor. And I, and, and then they, they, they weren't that stupid. So the filmmakers pushed back and then the distributor said, oh, well, okay, maybe just 10 years and, and a hundred thousand dollars total. So basically what he was telling you is like, I was throwing you out the worst deal possible to see if you would bite
2: Mm.
1: and because you didn't bite and now you're pushing back. Okay. I can negotiate now, but that is the tactic that most Uh, film distributors specifically the low mid to lower level distributors do Mm -hmm. because they're they're in a desperate situation right now and it's it's scary for filmmakers
0: yeah it's interesting because in the classic sense of distributors before on demand and and the internet um wasn't correct me if i'm wrong but it wasn't part of their job to promote your your Mm -hmm. film and that is,
1: that actually part, that's what is called the marketing cap. That's a, a marketing budget. They right. would market your film into the marketplace. But the problem is that they don't know how to market anymore
2: mm.
1: because they, they, there's too much competition. There's too much, uh, there's too much product in the marketplace and th- they, they just don't know what to do anymore. You can't just buy Facebook ads. Mm-hmm. The ROI on Facebook ads doesn't make a lot of sense when you're making a penny to five cents per stream. Mm-hmm. It, it, the business model is broken it just doesn't make any sense anymore
2: right. and
1: they're they're slowly figuring it out uh, the distributors are slowly figuring it out I still believe that most of them will be gone within the next five years because I have, I've said this publicly many times we are in fairly good economic times so when the next bubble bursts or the next crisis hits our industry is going to be slammed mm. and it's going It's going to destroy most of these companies. They just
0: won't be able to survive. They just won't be able to survive. Well, it seems like uh, the more and more technology advances, um, the less they're needed you know? Well, without, without question, the Lester needed. Look, there's still
1: like, I, you know, I, I always talk about partnering with a, a traditional distributor and sometimes you can't partner with a traditional distributor depending on what they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. So like my last two movies, I've, I've partnered with a traditional distributor, but the deal that I got with her was really good and made a lot of sense to me. And you know, the budget that I made these movies for were extremely low. So I wasn't, Looking for a big payday because I've already built out other revenue streams that are paying me, mm-hmm. regardless of what the movie makes being exploited, exploiting the film itself, uh, the the access to the film itself, a uh, better, better way of putting it. But uh, most most of these distributors, when you sign a deal with them, they're going to do exactly what you're going to do, which is going to try to get your film up on all the platforms mm-hmm. and just try to see what happens. And that's yeah. basically all they're going to do. They're not doing a theatrical. You know, the cable deals are starting to to do – the cable deals are really for the high-end movies. Sure. You know, the occasional Showtime deal, the occasional HBO deal for an independent. But it has to fit a real specific niche. Redbox is picking up every once in a while. Mm. You know, Family Video, which is the last video store chain in the country, which is in the middle of the country, they still have like a like – two, three hundred stores, believe it or not, in the middle of the country somewhere. They're still doing deals, but they're becoming less and less and less. So these new platforms that are coming up, they're they're not paying. They're right. just not paying as much because the business models that they're coming up with Don't make sense. So I'll use the perfect analogy is the music industry. What happened in the music industry is happening to us right now. And all you have to do is look at what happened in the music industry to see where we're going. It's not brain. It's not rocket science here. So this is what happened with with the traditional labels, which are the studios in our world. They controlled the access and distribution to all of the artists uh, artists' work, which are their songs, which are to us would be films.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: the The big difference is the cost to produce something in the music industry is a lot less than it is to produce a film in the film industry. Right. but but those those numbers are starting to come closer and closer together because of technology. So once the m p three showed up, and once piracy started happening, and then once uh, that went out of control, They tried to fight the technology. They tried to sue people. They tried to fight piracy. When Steve Jobs showed up, he said, look, guys, you can't fight piracy. You can only compete with it. So he created iTunes, Mm -hmm. which was a wonderful way of uh, being able to access the movies you want on your new beautiful iPod, which he had developed. Mm -hmm. So he controlled – so all of a sudden Steve Jobs, an uh, industry outsider with Apple, controlled the distribution and the – and the way you you consumed the product, all within their company, and they were outside the industry. How could the entire all this, all those labels allow that to happen? How could they allow this this you know basically a computer company come in and take over, which is what they did, and by doing that they devalued the the value of the of music. Music used to be seventeen ninety nine for ten songs. Mm-hmm. It's like $1.70 each if you wanted to break it down, give or take, right? Oh, yeah. That was what the cost of music is. Now, that same 10 songs are fractions of a penny per song, fractions of a penny. So the money is not there anymore because the consumer has changed their habit. The, con- the consumer has changed what they're, how they're consuming the product, what they expect to pay for it because the, the golden goose is gone. Right. Because they don't control distribution anymore. They don't control access anymore because the internet eliminated all that. So the exact same thing is happening with the film business. Oh, and by the way, back in the music business for a second, what else did they do? If it would have just stayed at iTunes, there would still be some money to be made there. 70 yeah. cents a song or whatever it was after, after Apple took its cut wasn't bad cons- considering. But then Spotify showed up. Mm-hmm. Then a- Amazon Music showed up and now it's fractions of a penny right. for a song to play. I, I, um, I did uh, in, my, in this article I just wrote about this. Your song has to play 337,200 times for you to generate fourteen hundred $1,437 uh, in, in, in cash yeah. a month. So that's that's minimum that's that's below minimum wage. Mm
0: -hmm. That's why a lot of bands are releasing vinyl now. You you can sell a new album for forty bucks, and that's the new revenue. Maybe we got to start putting our stuff on VHS.
1: Uh,
0: Well, there's, there's, (laughs) we'll we'll talk about revenue streams in
1: a little bit, but, um, but the, but the point is that the music industry, that's exactly what happened to music. So now it's happening to us. Before movies used to have a prime, it used to cost a lot to watch a movie. So to go to the theater, 15 bucks, 20 bucks, depending on where you spent and what time of day you went. So it was 15, 20 bucks plus buying Cokes and everything like that. So it could be 40 or 50 bucks to watch a movie Mm -hmm. in a really good exhibition. But then all of a sudden, VHS has showed up. So then the price the 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 cost to access a movie went down before you didn't have a choice, it was theaters
2: mm-hmm.
1: then VHS showed up and then it was like, well, wow, so I could rent this for four or five bucks. Wow, then all of a sudden DVD showed up. and then oh, don't forget cable
2: mm-hmm.
1: before it was just So cable showed up. So the devaluization of movies started happening then. It wasn't as big and it wasn't as fast as this happening now, but when you know you watched an older movie on cable, the movie had already exhausted a lot of their, its revenue. Sure, But but now you have something called Netflix that showed up and completely upended the entire industry, very much like the technology of MP3s did to the music industry. Mm -hmm. So now Netflix shows up and changes our entire habits. They introduce a category, which is streaming movies. They are the dominant force in that place, though they have big competition coming up after them. But they are the dominant force in the world. For streaming platforms, because they are, they are basically a, a, a category king. So now we, for 11 bucks or 12 bucks a month, can watch as much stuff as we want, as many movies as we want, as many shows as we want, yeah. for 12 bucks. So now, each episode of a show, each movie, has been dropped down to fractions of a penny,
2: mm-hmm. or,
1: or you know, five cents, seven cents, you know, fractions of what it used to be. And now for us as independent filmmakers, how are we supposed to make money with our films? You know, how are we supposed to monetize? Because before the DVD market was massive for years. There were movies that just they would make millions of dollars just on DVD. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if you remember that um, that franchise Sniper. Remember that movie Sniper with Tom Berenger from the 80s? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. There was like seven of those. Right. (laughs) There was seven of those. I promise you none of them played in the theater except mm-hmm. for maybe the first one. They were all straight to DVD because there was obscene amounts of money to be made there. And also don't forget the rest of the world was pretty much closed off. That market had, was shut up from independent filmmakers. So you had to go to a place like AFM to sell your movie to gain access to those marketplaces, right. to those, 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 uh, that audience. Well, then Amazon shows up and, ch- and changes all of that. And then all these other platforms start showing up. And now access to the world market is in the power of the independent filmmaker. The problem is it's in the power of the independent filmmaker. Everybody has op- op- <laughs> opportunities now. So there's a lot more competition. Yeah. And now there's, there's too much content in the world uh, being made on a daily basis. So how in God's green earth can a filmmaker make money in
0: today's film economy is the question yeah. happening. And I, I imagine that's where the film entrepreneur comes in.
1: Well um, funny you should ask.
0: <laughs> but I, I do want to uh just <laughs> a little bit friend. more on AFM. Sure. Um <clears throat> so I I just wonder what the future is. Is it is AFM gonna morph into less buying and selling and more seminars and workshops, that sort of thing?
1: I don't really know. I mean, you know, I had Jonathan Wolf the um the the person who basically runs AFM Mm -hmm. on the show. And I think that AFM is going to have to morph uh, into something else. Uh, It's going to, it has to adjust. It has to pivot. And they, and they are doing that this year. There was the first year that they allowed people to screen their movies. If you, for a fee, you can screen your movies at the AFM. So buyers Mm -hmm. from around the world would be able to Watch your movie and, and make an offer, give or take.
0: Interesting. Uh, I was aware that there were screenings, but I didn't know it was pay to play or how. I thought they picked it, it like a festival or something. No,
1: not at all. It's it's a business. AFM is about the business. It has nothing to do with the with movies. They don't mm. even care if the movie is good or not. This is a business.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: when it comes to AFM, so they allowed to do that. They started talking. You know, they had me on the panel about micro budget filmmaking. In, in the history of AFM, no one ever talked about micro budget filmmaking, but they see that that's where things are going they had another panel on avod which is becoming the dominant way filmmakers can actually make money on on streaming services in one way shape or form Mm -hmm. because tvod is pretty much dead which is transactional video on demand you know when was the last time you rented or purchased something is rare especially for independent filmmakers unless you have an audience that you can drive it doesn't make a whole lot of sense yeah like vimeo
0: nobody's buying movies on vimeo
1: not really, unless you have an audience that's familiar with that that platform, or an audience that's willing to pay for for your content. Mm-hmm. And then there's SVOD, which is is drying up faster and faster. There is still money to be made in SVOD. I mean, the big the big SVOD um, subscription services are not buying independent films as much as they used to. Uh, but you know, you put it up on Amazon. They just released that after January first. Uh, it's going to be a penny an hour. Hmm. A penny an hour for the bad for the bad stuff. And for the good stuff, they're going to do 12 cents, up up to 12 cents an hour. So it all depends on the algorithm where you're ranked and all sorts of different parameters. So it's good for good content, bad for bad content. It's the way they're trying to weed out all the bad content that's being uploaded to, uh, to Amazon because it's just so much bad stuff up there that doesn't get played that they just want to try to take that off as much as they possibly can.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So... There's not a lot of options at the moment, but other than SVOD and AVOD to really make money streaming. So I, I I don't know what what the future of AFM will be. I think there will always be some version of AFM running around. I just don't think it's going to look like it, it looks like today. No. Uh, and, and it doesn't look like what it looked like three, three years ago. Right. It's just the industry is changing so fast that something like AFM, all film markets, by the way, this includes Cannes, includes Berlin, includes all of them. They have to adjust. They have to change uh, they have to pivot because if they don't, they will be left behind because the people who sit around complaining about things, how the things should be, are going to be taken by the guy away. They're going to be taken by the people who are just doing it hmm. and do it. And by the time they figure it out, it's over. Same thing happened to the cab companies with Uber. Right. Same thing happened with the hotel business when it came to Airbnb. Like there's, there's multiple technologies, blockbuster and Netflix, you know, it was just, there's a, there's example after example after example, of of companies who are stuck in the, the the status quo, and if they're not careful and they don't adjust, they will be left behind and their companies won't make it. I think AFM, I think Jonathan's doing a a good job with AFM, and I think it will adjust. I think they are going to probably expand their educational and they're going to it's going to change the whole market will change it was already very very different than it was last year i mm-hmm. mean 500 less vendors which also says something you know it says something that a lot of these uh, a lot of these companies are are not are not surviving and they're not going to the afm not for anything about afm i just think distribution companies are starting to go out of business more and more because they do not understand the new world mm-hmm. and they're still stuck in the old world and they're still complaining about how things should be when they start they figuring out how can I
0: adjust if not I will be left behind mm-hmm. so with indie filmmakers and the whole streaming situation getting pennies uh, for their films do you see sort of a, a grassroots movement where people are four it renting a theater selling merch making money that way city to city there's multiple different models about
1: how you can generate revenue with a movie, with with any kind of film. Mm-hmm. So my new book, Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, literally breaks down an entire method, which I call the Film Entrepreneur Method, when you have to become an entrepreneurial filmmaker. And thinking like an entrepreneurial filmmaker, you're thinking about the business while you're developing the project, while you're you're thinking about the creative, you're thinking about the business. So. You have to think of multiple revenue streams, multiple ways to generate revenue from this film that is not dedicated only to the exploitation or access to watch the film.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. In the the perfect scenario, you give your movie away for free or on pennies pennies for an hour because you're making money – through other revenue streams because of the access that people are getting to it. It's similar to what the in- movie industry did. I mean, excuse me, the music industry did. A lot of artists started literally, I think it was Radiohead or Coldplay, one of those two bands, they literally just put their entire album
2: mm-hmm. on
1: BitTorrent, on BitTorrent. They literally just put it out there for pirates to steal. Mm-hmm. And because they wanted to get it out there and because they did that, they generate their show sold out more there was like all these other ancillary ways uh, that they were generating revenue were benefited by the marketing of their new album. So yeah. filmmakers have to think that way to a certain extent. It's a case-by-case basis. Of course, you know if you made a half a million dollar movie, you've really got to understand how you're going to get that ROI back, how you're going to get that return on investment back. There's a lot of different things. And one of the big foundations of the film entrepreneur method is to keep the budget as low as humanly possible, where I find that a lot of filmmakers in today's world is still are still making movies like it's the '90s and the early 2000s. Hmm. They're literally they they're thinking that's how they're going to sell their movie. They're thinking those are the kind of budgets that their movies justify in today's marketplace when they don't. You know, for you to to for you to have half a million dollars in today's marketplace to make a movie that is not niche. And has a star or a star of that niche in it. And you don't have pre-built relationships on how you're going to either get sponsorships, either strategic, strategic strategic partnerships where you use them to help you market it. If, if you don't have a lot of these things in place, you're dead. Mm-hmm. You're dead. That's the one thing I did realize at AFM is I met a lot of filmmakers. And I heard this from, from distributors as well, that there's three, four, five, $600,000 movies that have zero market value zero, zero market value like they're mm. they're literally bargain basement nothing yeah and, and and that wasn't the case years ago if you made a half a million dollar movie chances are you could throw it into the system and you would be able to either break even or lose a little bit of money but you would be able to generate something either through DVDs through foreign sales through something
0: mm-hmm Well, I feel like directors, indie directors specifically, have more of a resourceful vibe about them where they can figure out how to do certain things. Do you think part of the problem with all this is when you crew up and the producer you hired, you know, just got off a a million dollar movie and this is how they do it? They got to make sure they have all the right stuff because that's how you make a movie rather Mm -hmm. than try and think outside the box and, you know. Correct. I think that's a major problem, because,
1: look, there there are places for those movies. I'm not saying that the million dollar movie is dead or or the three million dollar movie. It's that it, it's not. But you just have to have certain relationships in place, certain distribution, you know, angles in place. There's a lot of things you need to have, to to at least hedge your bet that you're going to be able to recoup that money and also make money with that film. Mm-hmm. It, it, and thinking like like you've got a first time director who gets $300,000 why would you do that? And trust me I was a first time director at one point. Mm-hmm. But in today's world that's not justified anymore. A $300,000 budget film, you really need to understand what's going on. Yeah. And most and most filmmakers that I run into and I speak to that you give them, you know they're like oh how much is your budget? Oh it's 300,000. How did you how did you plan to make your money back? And all you hear is crickets. <laughs> they don't think about it. They don't think about the money. All they think about is the art and how cool it's going to look. And one day being in the Criterion collection with, you know, and, and all the, the, you know, the sizzle. But there's no stake, man.
0: Right. And, and and the people they surround themselves with are more concerned with making the actual movie than anything after it. Sometimes. Well, yeah,
1: because that's sexy. Yeah. It's, it's t- as difficult as that is. It is extremely sexy to have the latest Alexa with the mm-hmm. coolest lenses and to do the ten-minute oneer mm-hmm. and you know and all that cool stuff. Trust me, I know. I've been there. I've done it. I get it. It's super sexy. What's not sexy is thinking about marketing and distribution and ROIs and and revenue streams and all that stuff. Because by the time you're done with the movie, you're exhausted. But if you, the the problem is that most film, filmmakers think that the end of the movie is when you. Deliver the final cut. That is not the end of it. That is literally the beginning of the next chapter of the life of a film. Mm-hmm. And you can't give that to somebody else in hopes that they're going to be good to you. So most filmmakers think, like, I'm going to make my movie. I'm going to get it, give it to a distributor. They're going to take care of all the business and we're going to get a check. But because the distributors are having such a difficult time making money, they're robbing people left and right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They, they're just straight up are stealing. I'm not saying all, I'm saying a lot. I've said this publicly too. You have to go into the distribution world knowing that the majority are there to screw you. The majority are there to take your money and not give you money back for your film. You have to walk in with that assumption. Hmm. And I'm not trying to be pessimistic, I'm being a realist. The the contracts that distributors put together are to benefit the distributor. That is business 101, period. Period right? So if you're walking into a relationship where the relationship is starting with everything is for me, which again is business 101, you've got to negotiate that to make it work. But even when you negotiate that, and even after you get a contract, let's say you made a $100,000 movie and a distributor hasn't paid you in two years. Are you going to hire an attorney for 30 or 40,000 to go sue them? Hmm, no. And that's what, and that's what a lot of these predatory distributors want. Hmm.
0: They'll just take your movie. I'm like, oh, you don't like it? Sue us. Yeah. Now, if you have more than one film that you're trying to sell at the same time, does that give you a little more leverage?
1: You mean me personally?
0: No, just, you know, in general, if you, let's say someone went to AFM with two films, um, trying to get distributed or, or picked Anytime
1: up. Anytime
0: you, okay. First of all, if you have more than one film, if you have two or three or four films,
1: you should already figure out how you should be generating revenue with those films without giving them to a distributor hmm. all in. Right. Again, unless you partner with them, unless you, you – it, it's, it's maddening to me when I hear stories of like filmmakers who had maybe three or four or five movies. Generally speaking, when you have three, four or five movies, you figured a few things out. Mm-hmm. So generally, you're not going to be that stupid. you are not going to be
0: sitting around waiting to be – Take they're in.
1: not. They're no. If you've made two movies, three movies, four movies, you're a little bit more seasoned, and the distri- these predatory distributors are not going to pull one over on you. As a general statement,
2: hmm.
1: they're looking for the first the first filmmaker, maybe the 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 the, the two time filmmaker
2: mm-hmm.
1: that they still haven't figured it out yet. That's who they prey upon. And at AFM there was a lot of that praying going on. And that's but that's been going on since the beginning of time, basically. That's nothing new. I just think it's been heightened and getting worse because of the economic environment that films are in and the devaluization, devaluation, devaluation of media in general and movies in our case.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So you seem to uh, you said you laid out. Uh, the the revenue streams uh, that an indie filmmaker um, could could pursue. I, I don't want you to give away everything because obviously it's your new book. You want people to buy it. But uh, sure. can you touch on a couple of those? I was was I warm with the four-walling yet?
1: I have a whole chapter on 4 I have a whole chapter on on-demand demand screenings, which is kind of like uh, Tug, if you haven't used tug.com, where hmm. you can actually crowdsource a screening free. There's no upfront cost. You just have to fill the seats and then you get a commission off of that. You can do four walling. But I honestly also think that one of the biggest growth areas for independent filmmakers is theaters because there's less and less content coming out for the movie theater experience. Studios are making less and less movies every year. And now with things like Disney+, Plus, I promise you that there's going to be a moment where Disney makes... Well, Netflix already does it. They're pulling, you know, The Irishman.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a $160, $200 million movie. It's going straight to Netflix, basically. Other than a few token screens here in L.A. and New York.
0: Yeah, they do that, that, they, that for just, the Oscar buzz, right? They, 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 yeah,
1: they just, do, they, they just do that for Oscar consider, uh, to be uh, qualified for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. That's all it was for. But that's essentially going straight to DVD... Or straight to, excuse me, <laughs> straight to to the streaming service. So that that this was what I'm talking about is already happening in Netflix. But you, do you mean to tell me that, um, Disney's not going to do that too? You know, they're not going to make a hundred million dollar movie. They're, they're not going to make frozen three only accessible eventually on, on Disney plus. So the first time it comes out will be Disney plus. Oh yeah. And it's instead of getting 50% of the box office for a few weeks, you get, millions of of new subscribers who will stay with your with your service
0: Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like when they did like you were saying uh straight to video back in the day they made like an aladdin sequel you know oh
1: yeah land before
0: time was a different company but they had like four of them straight to vhs seven
1: or eight yeah (laughs) ridiculous it was ridiculous yeah yeah, there's, 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 they're, they're, they're going to start doing that again. So the movie theaters are going to be wanting for content. They're already starting out art house distribution labels like AMC is and Lowe's and all these other um, brands are starting to do that because they're starting to see it. Like Amer- Animal uh, Alamo Draft House, they're they're very indie friendly because they understand that they need cinema. And there's a a, a segment of the audience. Of this popula of the population here in the U.S., but also I think around the world in certain countries, who want to go to the movie theaters, who want that cinematic experience, who want to go see art house films
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, or films that are not on the mainstream. There are there is an audience. It's a smaller audience, but it's an audience, and every major city has it. And I promise you, and I have examples of it in my book, where I have a whole chapter on the regional cinema model when you're making content for your region. And 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 how you can monetize that, where you reach out to the movie theaters in your town and go, look, I'm making a movie about the town. Do you want to put it up? And a lot of times they'll just screen it, yeah, and not and not charge you anything for it. The rules are changing so rapidly; it's not even funny. It, it, it's just a massive change. But the, I'm going to give you a few pillars okay. of the f- f- film entrepreneur method. One, keep your overhead as low as humanly possible. I always tell people if someone gave me half a million dollars right now to go make a movie, I would make ten to twelve movies. <laughs> nice. Because you're going to diversify your portfolio. You're going to be able, you, instead of taking one swing at the bat or one pull at the at the um, at the slot machine, you're going to get twelve
2: mm-hmm.
1: pulls. What are the chances that you're going to hit something? Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Filmmakers don't think filmmakers don't think that way. They only think of the glory. They only think about, oh, this is the movie that's gonna blow me up. This is the movie that's gonna get into Sundance. This is the movie that's going to get me the next Marvel movie. Sure, that happens once in a blue moon, and it's called the lottery ticket. I talk all about the lottery ticket mentality, which I was a I was, you know, infected with that disease for almost 20 years of my career. Mm. It's it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be because you make stupid decisions when you're thinking that way. You have to think about this in a more pragmatic, and a more business standpoint when you're making movies because unfortunately our art form is extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. It's an expensive art form. I wish I could just grab a guitar and start playing a song and that that would express myself as an artist. But unfortunately, that is not the way – I I unfortunately picked a very expensive art form, Mm -hmm. which costs a lot of money, even if it's thousands of dollars, but you still need to collaborate with people. You still need to, it's just very complex art form.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really uh, interesting how you said you would make 12 films for that sum of money. It almost makes me wonder why some subset of a studio doesn't do just that. Like, uh, instead of giving money for one film, Hey, you're going to make 12 and they're all going to be dirt cheap.
1: Well, what they that's well, that's the Bloomhouse model. So mm. that's what Universal's been doing with Bloomhouse. So oh, that okay. works really well with Bloomhouse. They make five million or below budget horror movies. So it's a niche audience. It's genre. And they've cut out and now Bloomhouse has become a brand. Mm. So they've built themselves out a wonderful little niche there with Bloomhouse and what and how, how Bloomhouse was able to do what they did. The studios are not in the business of making those smaller movies. Remember, they used to do that. They used to do mid-budget movies. There used to be a $20 million movie. Yeah. There used to be a $30 million movie. They sometimes it would make 15 and $50 million movies. But those days are gone. It's either $10 million or below, or $80, $90, and above. Because the cost of marketing a studio movie in today's film economy is super expensive. Mm-hmm. So if they they it's a risk for them to spend 30 million dollars on a movie and spend another 50 million on marketing when really the 50 million is not going to do something for them because it costs so much to market to everybody. Mm-hmm. It it takes 150 200 million dollars for these tentpole movies to get marketed. Because they're going after a wide range a, a big audience. They're, they're basically hitting everybody.
0: Yeah, sometimes they still don't work.
1: And they and they still don't work. So imagine if they risk 150 million bucks on a 30 million dollar movie. It doesn't make financial sense to do so. Uh-huh. So that's why they've all switched over to the tentpole movie, the franchise movie. Right. That's why the it's a rarity for movies that are not franchises to come out. Disney is, and I had a whole I talked all about it in my new podcast episode about how Disney has is basically one of the few companies who's going to survive the I, you know The film economy collapse in the next five or 10 years. Same thing happened at the, in, in, in the labels, the music labels. Same thing. There used to be six, seven, eight of them, right? Now there's three. They all consolidated. Same thing's going to happen with, with the film industry. Exact mm-hmm. same thing's going to happen. It's already happening. Fox got gobbled up by Disney. So who's next? Paramount, Sony, and Lionsgate. Those three are going to get eaten up by somebody. Apple will buy them. Google will buy them. Facebook will buy it. Netflix will get maybe even eaten up by somebody else. It's gonna be there's gonna be more consolidation of all of these all of these brands, but they're in the business of making these franchises. Why? Because if you look at the old ways of um, the 90, '80s, '90s, early 2000s, you remember when movie stars would make 25 million bucks, 20 million bucks. You know, Tom Cruise, That's Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. Will Smith, uh, you know, Julia Roberts, Cameron Diaz. The, they would make these kind of huge paydays. Jim Carrey, the, the, the 15, 20 million dollar paydays. The reason why studios did that is because audiences wanted to go see a Jim Carrey movie because Jim Carrey was a franchise. Mm -hmm. You go see a Jim Carrey movie, you generally know what you're going to get unless he went over to the dramatic side, which weren't nearly as profitable. Same thing happened to Robin Williams. You know, when he started doing dramas, they're not as profitable as when he's funny Mm
0: because that's what people want. Not that he's not good at both. It's just the way the audience worked. And then... It's built-in advertising. It's a brand recognition. It's brand
1: recognition. So these, these studio these uh, movie stars started to build up their own brands. But when there was no competition, there's little competition in the world. There's little competition for our eyeballs even. There was no internet. There was no social media. Video games was a hobby, not the multi-billion, billion-dollar industry that it is today. So the competition for our eyeballs and for our attention wasn't as fierce. So – you would feel comfortable going to a Jim Carrey movie and spending money to a Jim Carrey movie because you generally knew what you were going to get. Uh-huh. The same thing happened with Adam Sandler. If you remember, Adam Sandler was a very big payday guy
2: too. Sure.
1: Then all of a sudden, we started seeing that movie stars don't mean as much. Tom Cruise could literally go out and read the paper and it was a $20 million opening. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger could do the same thing back in the day. Am mm. I wrong? These were,
0: these were movie stars who had that kind of box office pull. Yeah, well, now it's it's the whole Avengers thing. And One is it's not franchise. enough. You bring in it, twenty of them.
1: But even then, think about who you're talking about. The Avengers essentially are not movie stars. Now you can argue Robert Downey Jr., but when Robert Downey took Iron Man on, that was a risk.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He hadn't done anything. He definitely hadn't done a big action movie. He definitely wasn't a a, a movie star, a box office draw.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, and none of the other Avengers were either. Now filmmaker, so now the industry, uh, the audience looks for franchises. That's their comfort zone, not the movie star anymore. Hmm. Now they're looking for franchises so fast and furious. Pixar, right. Star Wars, um, Marvel, uh, you know and, and Harry Potter, these are franchises that people feel comfortable with. They know what they're going to get when they get it. And it's It's familiar. It's good. That's why they're always trying to leverage books. That's always why they're trying to leverage other IPs mm-hmm. and, 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 and put them into movies because those are, they have built-in audiences and, and they're hoping that people will come out. The Hunger Games, all of these kind of books and, and franchises. But we're starting to get to a point where there's franchise fatigue. And it's happened, you know, look what happened with Charlie's Angels. Oh yeah! They just died on died on the vine. The last ter- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles died. Terminator. Um, Terminator just died, um, and that brand new Will Smith Gemini Man oh, died a yeah. miserable death. Where that movie could have done very well on Netflix.
0: How about it Bad Boys? Of- Did that do all right?
1: Bad Boys hasn't come out yet. Oh the, okay. The Bad Boys Three. I'm curious. Yeah. I'm going to go see it because I remember the first two
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I'm, and I'm a fan of those two guys in, see that's where the power lies because now that those actors, because Martin Lawrence hasn't done a damn thing
2: mm-hmm. in
1: a long time. yeah. But Martin Lawrence mixed with Will Smith in a bad boy style movie. I know what I'm going to get. Exactly. Yeah. General statement. So that's a powerful combination. But when they put Tom Cruise in the mummy, what happened? <laughs> but you put Tom, Cruise. that was in a Tom disaster. T- but well, you put Tom Cruise in Top Gun or in a Mission Impossible movie, yeah. billion dollars, because it's it's not as much about Tom Cruise. It is, but he, Tom Cruise in the combination of the franchise.
0: Yeah, and you They're even awesome. see just to to talk on Tom Cruise a little bit more. You even see he makes the transitions to franchises with his uh, is it Jack Reacher ones, and yeah, um, he, he's he's very smart. Keanu business. has uh, John Wick.
1: Oh, God, Keanu. I mean, John Wick. I mean, he built that entire... Now John Wick is a major franchise. They're going to keep making John Wicks until Keanu can't walk anymore. So
0: (laughs) he's just going to keep... Because they're awesome. They're amazing. No, they are. They're They're, great. But it it goes to what you were saying. It used to be movie stars. Now it's franchises. And the top, smartest movie stars are making their own transition.
1: Right, because, look, no one's going to go see a Keanu Reeves movie unless he's in a franchise that they want. So the new Matrix might... Do well because it's the Matrix, one, -hmm. which is a big fan base. Two, it's Keanu in a role that made him famous. Okay, maybe. But and he's also doing Bill and Ted. Yeah, I'm
0: excited for that. I don't know what the heck it's gonna be, but
1: I'm excited for it as well. But but we're from a generation that remembers those movies. I'm not sure how it's gonna do. I'm curious. If they do it for a smart number, it will probably do very well. Mm. But Keanu in John Wick, all of a sudden. That is megastar level. But look at look at The Rock, which is arguably one of the biggest movie stars in the world, right? Mm-hmm. You put him in Jumanji in a in a in a role that really works with him, where he's comedic and there's some action and action adventure. There's th- that's a good combination. But you put him in skyscraper, which is basically a diehard ripoff.
0: Yeah.
1: It died, it died on the vine. Even even The Rock, who's the biggest movie star, most charismatic movie star on the planet right now, still couldn't. Save that movie. That is the difference between where we were and where we are. Now, you were saying about independent films and what we need in our movies. I argue that you – any look, anytime you could put a face or a movie star of some sort in your movie, it's always a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's never a bad bad thing. It's a general statement unless the movie star has done something bad. Um, It's never a bad thing. But I argued that there's ways around and the cost – ways around the cost of, ach- of, of gaining uh, that credibility with your film. So let's say you niche down. I'm going to make a horror movie. okay? Now, everybody and their mother makes a horror movie nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to niche down even more. So horror is too broad. What kind of horror movie are you making? Well, I'm going to make an 80s slasher movie. Great. So now you, now that's a segment of the audience that you can probably reach fairly easily. And it's a large segment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now do you need Tom Cruise in that movie? No. But how about if I cast Robert Mm England? How about I cast that little girl from Halloween? How about I cast some actors who are known in that niche audience's mind, who actually have more pull and more authority in my movie than The Rock does. Right. That's true. But you're getting, but you're getting them at a fraction of the cost. Robert England to show up for a day or two, I can't imagine being more than 10 or 15 grand. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm pulling that number straight out of my butt. Yeah. But generally speaking, that's what it would probably cost. A lot of these actors will show up for five, six, seven, eight, 10 grand, 15 grand tops. They'll show up for the day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No problem. They'll show up for the day to do that. And that adds a tremendous amount of credibility in your niche audience. Now, with that same movie, now you have, and so just a t- I talk about it in my book a lot, a ton of different ways you can make money with that movie. First of all, you gotta make that movie for a smart number. So that's as low as humanly possible 50 grand, 60 grand, make it as low as humanly possible. You, you basically gotta make your, your movie or the product for as low as you can while still maintaining an MVP, which is a minimal viable product for the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Do you need the Technocrane for the day? No. Could you do that same shot without the Technocrane? Yes. How much does the Technocrane add to the bottom line? You have to look at things like that. How much does the Steadicam shot that you've been writing for months in your head, how much does that bring to the bottom line? Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Again. I'm not trying to stop you as an artist, or, or, or you know, you know, handcuff you. If you can build out a project that justifies that and absolutely needs it, by all means, do it. But that's where filmmakers start to to drop the ball because they're like, well, I need the technocrane. Well, listen, I've shot with a technocrane. I understand. I wish a technocrane followed me around everywhere I went. It's fantastic. It's one of the one most wonderful pieces of filmmaking gear you could ever use mm-hmm. as a director. But it's expensive as balls.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Expensive as hell to use one of those things. So you have to ask, could I get away with a jib arm? Could I get away with a moving shot? Can I maybe change it to handheld? Like, There's so many different ways of changing it. Mm -hmm. So once you've developed that project and you've you've made it for as low as you can, now you should have been cultivating that audience before you even started shooting. Mm -hmm. You should have brought them along the entire way. It should take you – this is a year-long process. While you're developing it, you should be building this up. You should be getting artwork done. You should be doing videos. You should be just constantly providing value to that niche audience. And now with that specific niche audience, what's wonderful about the horror niche is that one of the most passionate fan bases around. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: There is horror conventions everywhere around the world that just love horror. The other thing that's wonderful about that niche audience is they love physical media. They love DVDs, they love Blu-rays, and they love VHS. Mm. They love metal lunchboxes, they love action figures, mm-hmm. they love t-shirts, they love plastic machetes. They love, you know, all of that stuff. You have a plethora of products that you can build for that audience. And that has nothing to do with the exploitation of the movie itself. Right. That movie that movie you could literally f- screen for free. Screen the movie for free at a, at a horror convention. Right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And just and just send everybody to your table. If you have 100 shirts, 100 t-shirts with a great poster from your movie on it at a horror convention and they just saw the movie, do you think you could sell that movie, sell those t-shirts for 25 bucks a pop? Oh yeah. No problem, right? Right. Uh, that's $2,500 in a day. How about, could you sell that movie on DVD and the t-shirt for 30 bucks? Oh yeah. Done. Do you see what I'm saying? hmm Now, if you made that movie for $500,000, it's going to take you a while.
0: Yeah. No, but I definitely you that see movie, that in the horror thing. They they love all the slasher shirts and, and, uh... they, and, and they, and they just love, they, that audience specifically loves that. They love
1: product. They want to buy product, but it's not just horror. You could do it with um, with a swimming niche. You could do it with skateboarders, surfers, mm-hmm. gamers. They all there's there's always ways to depending on the niche you're going after to be able to build ancillary revenue streams for your film. I use the vegan chef movie as a big example. Mm-hmm. I, I create this vegan chef movie, which is a romantic comedy about a vegan chef who meets uh, a, a barbecue champion, mm-hmm. and they fall in love, and chaos ensues. And so instead of doing a broad spectrum like Nora efron when Harry met Sally, romantic comedy, well, why don't we make one about vegans
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: and focus on that? So now I can, I can focus that that movie on that audience. By the way, the movie is called Crazy Sexy Vegan. That's why I called it. <laughs> so, so Crazy Sexy Vegan, and now you will be able to build out multiple product lines for them, courses on filmmaking, uh, courses on. Um, how to cook vegans. You've you've partnered with vegan chefs. You do strategic partnerships with Beyond the Meat and other uh, companies who do plant-based foods, who you can have incorporated in the movie. And then you can uh, use their email list to promote the movie when it comes out. And they have a million people on their email list and you don't have to pay a dime for it. There's so many ways that you can do this, but it takes time. It Mm -hmm. takes work and you just have to think differently. And that's what the book is really all about. It's really about how you as a filmmaker need to start thinking if you plan to survive as a working filmmaker in today or in the future. Because the, I truly believe this, that there is no other way for independent filmmakers to survive other than being entrepreneurial, to mm. become an entrepreneur. There, there's just no other way. The, the, the revenue streams are drying up left and right. The traditional ways of making money with movies are going away or being, or, or you gotta wish that you get a lottery ticket. To go into the studio system which is also changing and those that that world will change again as well so if you're thinking that what was working in the 90s is going to work today in the studio system it's not it's mm-hmm. not the way the world works anymore and there's a big difference between there's two different kind of filmmakers and there's n- nothing wrong with either of them one i'm going to use the example of the guitar player right so i'm going to go out and get a guitar i'm going to start learning how to play the guitar and uh, my investment in my good is my guitar. Basically that's my investment. Right? right. And every once in a while I'll go out, I get a gig as a co- I'm good enough that I get a gig at a coffee shop two, three times a month.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I can't live off that. It's my dream and I love doing it, but I can't live off that. Right. That's the traditional way of making money as a, as a musician. All right. Until you start thinking about other ancillary ways, that you, other ancillary revenue streams that you can create with that talent. But let's say that's it. well, that is called a hobbyist. Sure. That's a, that's a hobbyist, a professional in your art form makes a living with their art. Mm-hmm. That is the definition of a professional filmmaker. So I'm not saying that you, you know, your first movie out, you got to start making a living with it. It took me many years before I made a living doing what I love to do. It took me a long time. I built companies up around it. I built up post companies and I directed here and there. So when I wasn't directing, I was doing post-production. I always was had revenue coming in
2: mm-hmm.
1: as a filmmaker. So I was a professional filmmaker. So there's filmmakers out there who basically are – they have a day job. They're, they're either financing their movie by taking a loan out on their house or mom and dad gives them a loan or they crowdfund or something like that. They're trying to build something. Well, if they build this one-off mentality, which is what most filmmakers have, this like one and done, mm-hmm. like this is the movie that's going to blow me up. This is the movie that's going to get me the agent. This is the movie that's going to get me my next movie. Well, that mentality is going to kill you. You have to think of it much whole, more holistically and much more long-term where you're like, this is my first movie. Then here's my second movie. Right. Then here's my third movie. And I'm building a portfolio of, of films that are generating multiple revenue streams to the one day you wake up and you go, oh, I'm making 10 grand a month. I'm making five grand a month. Is that enough for me to cover everything I need to do? Is that cover my nut? Am I a professional filmmaker now all of a sudden? Mm-hmm. Yes, then you become a professional filmmaker. But and if you want to be a hobbyist, there's nothing wrong with it. If you want to make a movie every two, three years while you have a day job and hustle, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. How many people out there want to sing for a living, but can't or doesn't? Right. And they have the and they have the talent too, but the opportunities aren't there. The marketplace isn't there. There are certain circumstances that doesn't allow them to do that. They're they hobbyists. They'll sing every once in a while. They'll grab a gig here and there, but they haven't built out a business around their art. Mm-hmm. And that bit, by the way, if you're if you're a vocalist, and you're not teaching other people to be vocalists, and if you're good, well then you're you're not making that's a revenue stream that you can build out. Right. And all of a sudden you're building out a small business around what you love to do. It might not be exactly what you want to do, but but you're in the world. And that's what I've done with Indie Film Hustle.
2: Sure.
1: You know, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. I love making movies, but I've fallen in love with Indie Film Hustle. I've fallen in love with Bulletproof Screenwriting and I've and film entrepreneur. I've, I fell in love with guiding, teaching, writing books, educating other filmmakers Helping other people follow their dreams and be successful at their dreams, that's become my new addiction. But by the way, because I've done that, I can go off and make a movie whenever the hell I want. I made my last movie for $3,000. It's being distributed right now. World premiered at Raindance. My first movie I made for about five thousand dollars, which was completely crowdfunded, and I sold it. Uh, I sold it to Hulu. I licensed it to Hulu and sold it internationally as well as self-distributed it myself. And mm-hmm. I can I continue to make money with that movie all the time. Yeah, it's, well, that's
0: great. So you're actually making money on the movies because you made them for so little money. Um, but you're also yep. got all those peripherals going on with the books and the podcast and the and the speaking. So you, you're getting both angles there.
1: Yeah. In, in the book, I actually use my second movie on the corner of Ego and desires as a case study in a few, of, a few of the chapters. And in one of the chapters, I said, hey, guys, I'm making money with this movie right now because you bought this book and I'm using it as a case study in the book mm. here. And I actually say this. I say, hey. Let me make it easy for you. Why don't you go to www.egoanddesirefilm.com and watch my movie. And I, that's, I'm doing, I'm t- what I'm teaching you, I'm doing to you right now. Mm-hmm. Don't, hate the pl- don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> uh, but that's, but, but I wanted to be clear about that with people so they understand, like, holy crap, I've just, he's doing it to me. And I'm not doing it in a bad way. I'm just, this is the example of a business model. So I've been able to create this niche for myself which has a lot to do with who I am, my personality, my background, and and what I do and how. I mean, I was kind of born with this entrepreneurial thing. I was I was you know uh, built with it in the factory. I came from the factory like this. Hmm. Uh, so it's not something I was taught. But you can do it if you want to, if you have the ambition to do it, if you're serious about it, and. You know, people who are like, oh, I just want to be an artist. I don't want to think about the business. I'm like, I hate to tell you guys, if you don't, you're not going to make it. You're not going to be able to do the business. You're not going to be able to do the show. Mm -hmm. So the show and there's business and the word business has twice as many letters as the word show. And there's a reason for that. If you don't understand the business, you can't do the show. Period. Period. If you want to do it at a higher level, you definitely – the higher that budget goes, the more you have to understand about the business. The more you have to understand what's going on no matter what level you're at. You don't, and I always tell people, do you think that Chris Nolan, David Fincher, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, you know, d- that these people don't understand business of the of the film business? Are you kidding me? Of course they do. They all understand the business side of it.
2: Mm-hmm. If
1: they didn't, they wouldn't be able to get they wouldn't be able to be working at the level that they're working at with the budgets that they're working at. Think James Cameron and Guillermo del Toro don't understand business,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the film industry business? Of course they do. And they're artists and they're some of the greatest artists in our field. But do you see what I'm saying? I'm I'm trying to use them as a point. Yeah, you you got to
0: fuel the the art because otherwise you're not an artist. You're a one-off.
1: Correct. And it's an expensive art form. I wish I could just write. That's why I love writing books now. That's why I've written – released two books in one year. That's great. My first one was Shooting for the Mob and now I'm releasing this one. And I have another four or five books in me Hmm. that I already have in my head that I'm cooking but i love i love writing because it's a really affordable way to do this to express myself as an artist i love doing podcasts i love mm-hmm. creating video content i love creating educational products this is a way to express myself as an artist and as a businessman and i get to help people along the way which is the best of both
0: worlds yeah definitely you've helped me that's for sure i appreciate that um, yeah um, <laughs> I guess we should uh, mention when your book comes out. You said soon, right? Yeah, well, uh, depending on when this gets released,
1: by the time this gets released, it's probably going to already be out. It It came out or comes out December 2nd. Oh, awesome. So it will be available on paperback, on ebook, and on audiobook with this sultry voice reading <laughs> book to you. I apologize ahead of time.
0: Well, I could not but imagine uh, you getting anybody else to read your books. That just I,
1: I, it, you know what? There's a reason why I haven't finished shooting for the mob, because I don't have an audiobook version for shooting for the mob yet. And I've I've written I've recorded about thirty percent of it, mm. and the. Well, one because that's a much more emotional book than this one. Oh, I bet. Um, it's just very difficult for me to kind of go through it all again. But after this book, I in December I'm planning to see if I can get that done. Maybe in the new year, shooting for the mob will be done. But uh, trust me, I hate. I don't like doing. It's really difficult. Like I could talk for an hour, mm-hmm. like I just have, without a problem. Yeah. But reading performance, uh, how you, pronunciation. Uh, it's, it's it's rough, man. Reading is not a you know reading professionally. Voiceover artists earn their dollars, so uh, it, it's painful. It's painful. But I I, I people are like why don't you just hire somebody? I'm like, are you kidding me?
0: <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't work. I, I mean, I it wouldn't work. I, I, but I know, I'm a
1: podcast. I'm a podcaster. Yeah. My audience is is used to hearing my voice, and if I had someone else do it, they would be so pissed off. It wouldn't be funny. So yeah. they'd be like. Yeah, like if imagine if I gave you some like really beautiful VO guy to do my, my book.
0: <laughs> like a British you feel, guy. <laughs> you
1: would you would yeah, like a, absolutely like a British guy. And you you would probably feel gypped yeah. as a, as someone who listens to me or follows me. You would go, No, I really want to hear Alex talk about it. And then by the way, in my audio book, I like break off the book too. I'll just I'll go off on tangents. Mm. I'm like, hey guys, I'm leaving the book here for a second because I just want to tell you this. So if you get the audio book, there's actually bonus material in the oh, audio. Cool. That's not available elsewhere as well. Nice. And there's so, and then that's why I opened up filmtrepreneur.com and the filmtrepreneur podcast, because I I I launched everything together. So I launched the pre-order for the book. And I launched Film probably about three, or four months ago.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and it's doing extremely well. And I, I I just had a feeling that there was a there was a hole in the marketplace. In the marketplace, like there's a lot of people teaching you how to make a movie. There's a lot of people teaching you about how to kind of survive and get through it and all all these kind of techniques. And that's what I do with indie film hustle as well. But I didn't really see anyone focusing on the business, like heavy on mm-hmm. the business. Yeah. Had any sort of real credibility doing it. Not someone who's just scamming you to grab a couple cash. Like there's a few people I, I won't say, but um, but there's some, you know, people who are just in it for the cash. I wanted to create a resource, a free resource that really could help filmmakers. And I can really kind of go in deeper into places that I, I can't really go into in the Indie Film Hustle podcast because it's like, I really can't talk about affiliate marketing, um, online course creation. Like it's, it's a mm-hmm. little bit too nuanced for that podcast, but a film entrepreneur podcast, which is all about the business, all about generating revenue, marketing, micro budget, filmmaking, everything that goes around with the book, I could. And, the uh, and that's what I've done with the film, film, or filmmaking business. I also, if you go filmmaking com, it takes you there too, for the people who can't spell filmtrepreneur, which are most. Uh-huh. Uh, so, um, and then the, the podcast is, is live it, it already. I think we, we hit, we hit the new noteworthy on, on, uh, Apple podcasts where I think the fourth or fifth on the, in, in the film, indie film space already. Nice. Uh, so it's doing very, very well. Uh, along with your fantastic podcast,
0: yeah, right here, indie film grit. Indie
1: film grit, which I love the name, by the way. If, I, if, if, if it was another, if I, I have indie film hustle, but grit. That's not a. That's a good brand. A
0: good <laughs> yeah, hustle I, and like, grit, but, man.
1: Yeah, hustle and grit, baby. That's what we need. Maybe we should combine our our. <laughs>
0: <volumes>. <laughs> We'd be unstoppable.
1: <laughs> exactly, but that. So I launched that with Rise of the Film Entrepreneur book, and uh, it's uh, the, the book already became a bestseller uh, twice on wow. Amazon, uh, on pre-orders through the ebook, because people are really hungry for this. There is so much fear and misinformation out in the world right now of, in our world of, of filmmaking, especially about how to make money. Cause nobody understands how to do it. Like th- there's not, there's no guide. There's no, there's not anybody standing up and go, guys, this is a way
0: Right. Um, I remember books from like 20 years ago, you know, but uh, in this but he, day and age, there's nothing that walks yeah, you through nothing,
1: it. There's nothing in today's with today's technology, today's day and age. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Back then, you know, there were there were books like uh, what was it? The uh, Indie Films and Used Car, Used Car Prices by exactly. Sch- uh, Schmidt. And uh, of course, Robert Rodriguez is amazing book. Mm-hmm. without Fruit, But that's more of a, a biography than anything else. But there were a handful, but there hasn't been a book that I've ever read. I've read a lot of filmmaking books that I've seen that tackles the business the way I do with this very street level indie mentality. You know, there's big business books and big filmmaking books that talk about the macro of the film industry, of how the industry makes its money, how it it, it generates revenue and things like that. But there hasn't been anything that focuses on the micro, which is the independent way of doing it because it's one thing to say Disney Disney's business model is great they've diversified themselves to the hilt they've got they're basically a studio they're not a movie studio anymore they're a product and delivery service for IP basically is what they are mm-hmm. that's what, and they've been that way for many years and they've built that over the course of 20 years and they have infrastructures to do that and I can go all into all that but but it's wonderful for me to say that But an independent filmmaker is going to go, well, that's nice, Alex, but I'm not making 70 billion next year. (laughs) So uh, I, I don't have infrastructure. How can I do that at an indie level? Well, that's what this book is about. This book is about bottom, like right on the street level, how you can build an empire with your indie films. And I have multiple case studies, multiple case studies, which are not pie in the sky, which are not outliers. I even say that in the book. I'm like this is not about Blair Witch or paranormal activity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or those kind of films that are outliers. El Mariachi and Clerks and you know those, those those movies are outliers. They're lottery ticket winners. The movies I use generally are movies that are made by independent filmmakers and they just figured some stuff out along the way. And there's multiple examples I did that they've built multi-million dollar companies off of one or two films. And mm-hmm. I've taken their models, broken them down and implemented my model with it because they do – like there's one section that – one one group that does this and one group of filmmakers that do that and another one that does this. Mm-hmm. So all it all can work and if you combine all of them, which is what I'm trying to do, you could still really, really create a – a massive, uh, impact in your life. And by the way, uh, you don't have to become a millionaire to be a successful filmmaker. You know, all you have to do is put food on your table, keep a roof over your head and make sure that you have money to pay your bills. And if you can make that money doing your art, well, hell, isn't that the dream?
0: Totally, man. I mean, yeah, you're an inspiration (laughs) to a lot of, uh, indie filmmakers out there, myself included. And uh, it's amazing how you keep coming out with new stuff and keep figuring out new angles. Um, I'm looking forward to the rise of the film entrepreneur, um, and I'm sure a lot of people out there, especially uh, you know your tribe as you call them, uh, yes. are going to eat it up.
1: I, I think I, it's been it's been a very well received book, and it hasn't been released yet. So <laughs> it, it's it's one of those books that is a pretty much a no brainer. Like hey, do you want to make money with your movie? Well here you know rent the movie. You, you can you can either get it on ebook for ten bucks you can get the paperback for twenty four uh twenty four ninety nine or if you if you've never been an audible member, you can get it for free just sign up for their their uh thirty day uh trial process and you can listen to the book for free mm-hmm. and uh and I have links to all of that stuff as well uh but you know it's 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 exciting. It's a very exciting time. I'm actually, I've, I was excited when shooting for the mob got released because it was so emotional and it was just kind of like an exorcism of a lot of demons.
2: Yeah.
1: But, um, but this is different. This is going to really, and I hope it really impacts people's lives and makes a, a big difference in, in not only our world of filmmaking and screenwriting, but hopefully in the world at large and, and maybe hopefully get, a a spillover audience which is what I talk about in the book as well, a spillover audience that you never intended to um, to hit. So I hope uh, other people pick it up and get some value out of it.
0: Yeah, I'm sure they will, man. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for coming back on the, on the podcast. Um, and best of luck with all your new ventures. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate it. And if you want, can, can
1: I promote the links to where everything is, sir?
0: I would love that, yeah.
1: Uh, so if you want to get the book – uh, just head over to filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com, and it'll take you to uh, a page where you can buy it uh, on Amazon. I'm l- uploading it on uh, other places as well, like Barnes and Noble and things like that. It Will be available around the world uh, for print, ebook, and audiobook. And uh if you wanna check out indie film hustle, of course, just go to indiefilmhustle.com and filmtrepreneur is at uh filmtrepreneur.com the way it sounds, or just go to filmmakingbusiness.com and it takes you there. And of course, the one thing we never did we didn't even talk about is I, I completely rebranded and re am relaunching indie film hustle TV.
0: Oh. Which is what did you do uh, with that? Yeah, talk about that.
1: So Indie Film Muscle TV, for a lot of people who don't know, is a streaming service dedicated to filmmakers and screenwriters. And it teaches people – it has courses, it has movies, has uh, documentaries about making movies and so on. So it's, a, it's basically a little – Uh, Netflix. But what I've done is I've changed the focus of the platform directly to mostly being educational. I want to really reinvent the way film education is done. So a lot of the concepts that I have in my books and in my courses, and and not my courses, but in my podcast, I'm going to be bringing them to Indie Film Hustle TV. And I'm focusing on partnering and getting some of the best courses in the world on everything from filmmaking, screenwriting, uh, being a film entrepreneur, I'm going to be doing a, a lot of original uh, content about the book and things in the book, expanding on the things in the book in the in the uh, in the streaming service as well. And it's available on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon TV, on your iPhones, on your iPads, Android. It's available on all the apps. And uh, it's at indiefilmhustle.tv or ifhtv.com. And uh, I think by the time this uh, the Black the Black Friday sale will probably be over by the time this gets released. But uh, but it's still ninety nine ninety nine for ninety nine ninety five for the year, which is I think eight dollars and fifty three cents or something like
0: that, fifty seven cents a month. Not bad. For I mean for Disney 100- Plus is a little cheaper, but.
1: It is, but they don't have <laughs>
0: just kidding, man. they don't
1: have thousand dollar
0: courses
1: there <laughs> either. Uh that you get to you get access, uh just part. So that's the thing. It's all a lot of courses. There are movies there, there are documentaries, there are workshops and seminars from film festivals
2: awesome. that you can't
1: get anywhere else. There's a lot of exclusive content there as well and series about. Filmmakers and filmmaking, the filmmaking process as well. So, that's something else that I, I've, I've been very passionate about, and you're going to hear a lot more about uh, indie film hustle TV coming up in the new year as well. Awesome. Oh, and oh, don't forget! I, 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 I'm so sorry. I'm just like a pitch machine. No, I don't but care. Go ahead. That that movie that I did at at Sundance is coming out next year.
0: Oh yeah, the corner of ego and desire.
1: Uh, the corner of ego and desire, which is a movie I shot for three grand at the Sundance Film Festival about filmmakers trying to sell their movie at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, that one's going to be released on the 21st of January, 2020, three days before Sundance. So.
0: Oh, that's smart.
1: <laughs> so that's going to be released on Amazon, iTunes, and, of course, on IFH-TV. And on IFH-TV, you will get exclusive content, including director commentary, behind-the-scenes footage, uh, and all sorts of interviews uh, the premiere, uh, where you had Q and A with all the cast and crew, all sorts of stuff that you're going to have there, uh, as well. So that's, uh, that's very exciting as well. And then I will stop because I will just keep talking <laughs> about stuff I'm doing and I don't want to
0: do that to your audience.
2: <laughs> well, you actually
0: have, uh, you know, you have stuff worthy of talking about you do so many things and I appreciate I, it all. Um, I can't I wait appreciate- to see the, uh, on the corner of ego and desire.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm really proud of that one. That movie is—it's a, a love letter to filmmakers. It really is. I want to—I wanted to show us how ridiculous we are, because
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, we are—we're re- we're ridiculous human beings. There's no question about it. Uh, I put myself at the top of that list, mm-hmm. but um, I wanted to show a real, raw look at what filmmakers go through, some of the delusions we go through. So it's kind of like Spinal Tap meets uh, or Best of Show meets The Player. Mm. Uh, so it's—it's—it's it's, it's a. A parody of, of what we are as independent filmmakers, and it's of Sundance and Park City and that whole experience as well. But there's a lot of love there, and uh, I hope it makes filmmakers think a little bit about uh, what they're
0: doing and how they're doing it. So, yeah, great man, and it's revolutionary. Nobody's done it before.
1: Uh, well, I try to do that a lot.
0: Yeah, I do as much <laughs> as I
2: possibly can.
1: <laughs> but and by the way thank you so much for what you're doing with indie film great brother it, it, you know you're doing you're doing god's work here uh you're really helping out filmmakers and trying to educate them as well so i appreciate all the value that you bring to the community as well
0: oh thanks man and uh i hope to talk to you again when you get your next thing up and going i'm sure it's not that far off
1: it's uh, next week are you open next week
0: no <laughs>
1: <laughs> i appreciate i appreciate it thank you so much for helping sharing your audience Uh, with me so thank you again my friend
0: well that's that I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grit podcast feel free to go to our website and check out the show notes IndieFilmGrit.com follow us on Twitter at Indie Film Grit and if you enjoyed this episode give us a rating on iTunes well I should really wrap this up but before I go let me ask you something do you have the courage the passion And the perseverance to make indie films? Do you have enough indie film grit?